more in a funnel. A little bit nervous preaching with Howard in the front row. He wasn't going to be here. Although, although uh, to uh, give him his due, he does always listen to what's preached uh, to the recordings. So, um, but it is a little, a little different having him right there in front of us. But it, it, is my, uh, it is my pleasure to come to you this morning and talk to you about this book. This book, which is actually quite a difficult book and challenging book for us to read. It's written in a style we're not familiar with. It's full of challenging language. And it's a book that when I was young last millennium, um, I, you know, and I first read it probably sometime as a teenager, I found it quite bewildering and confusing and even a little bit scary because it had things like, you who have wisdom will understand this. And I thought, I don't understand what this is. Do I not have wisdom? Am I not a Christian? Why can't I understand this? Rather put me off reading Revelation. And then I, I went to university and I met people who came from different church backgrounds from mine. And they would tell me about Revelation meant this particular thing, like the, the United, uh, sorry, the European Union was the beast with ten horns. And I would think, how do they know that? Does it really mean that? And it put me off Revelation even more. You know, Revelation's been called the happy hunting ground by many a commentator for, commentator for bizarre theories and interpretations. But then when I was on my elective in Africa and there was a, a dearth of reading material around, I stumbled on a, a book. And this was in the days before Kindle, so, you know, you had to carry a book with you if you were going overseas. I came across a book called I Saw Heaven Opened, which was from the Bible Speaks Today series, uh, which was on Revelation. And I read that book and it, it opened the book to me and I was no longer afraid of reading it. I was no longer quite so confused. I found depths and riches in it. And it is our prayer, the preaching team's prayer, that as we go through the book of Revelation, that that is what will become true for you as well, that you will find in this book a message that you can hang on to, a message that will transform you, a message that will bring you hope. So what is Revelation? Well, John tells us right from the outset that three things about what it is. It is a revelation. Um, and thank you so much, Ulla, for the reading. But I have to say, it's not revelations, it's revelation. It is a singular revelation. And that word revelation uh, comes from the Greek word from which we get the word apocalypse. It literally is apocalypse, if you transliterate the Greek letters into English letters. It's an unveiling. But he tells us also that it's prophecy. And then lastly, we see that it is a letter. So I'm going to look at those three things in reverse order. First of all, it's a letter. Now, we're all very familiar with New Testament letters, and particularly the older of us are also used to actual letters, receiving them in, in the post and having the joy of reading them. And we know, we're familiar with the, the, the idea that they come from a particular person. We have an idea of the authorship for a lot of the New Testament letters, and that they go to a particular group of people a particular group of Christians who are facing particular issues. Uh, the fact that Christian life has its challenges and struggles is one of the reasons we have so many letters because people needed to hear the encouragement from their pastors and their, their ministers and their leaders and their apostles. So we're very familiar with that. So we've got this letter and it's from John. Now, there's a bit of discussion about 
which John this was. Classically, he's been identified with John the Apostle who wrote the Gospels. And we know that tradition states that he moved to Ephesus when he was an older man. And so this is, is a plausibility. And in fact, if you go to Ephesus, you can visit the alleged place of his home, as I have done, and had the privilege of doing. But it, other people think that it was possibly John the Elder who's identified in second, the letter of 2 John and 3 John. Um, and then some people say, well, maybe it was another John altogether. Uh, to some extent, I'm not sure that it matters which of those people you think it is. But we do know quite a bit about John from what he writes us in this letter. First of all, we know that he is a servant, or in fact, a slave of Christ. We, we usually translate that word servant because slavery has so many negative connotations for us, but the actual Greek word means slave. And whenever I'm reminded of that, I kind of am reminded of the fact that I don't actually behave as a slave would a lot of the time, for which I'm very grateful that God is a gracious and merciful and loving master. So he also tells us, not in the passage we had today, but in the next verse, that he is a fellow sufferer, brother, and companion of those to whom he writes. That he's exiled in Patmos because of his witness to Jesus. His letter tells us that he was steeped in scripture. More than any other book in the New Testament, Revelation is full of imagery and illusions that reference back to the Old Testament. Whilst there are no direct quotes, if we read the books, particularly Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Joel, Zechariah, among others, we can see where John draws his imagery from. In fact, uh, Eugene Peter says we've got no, no, no right to read the last book of the Bible if we haven't first read the first 65. If we were more steeped in our knowledge, if I knew those books better when I first read Revelation, I might, perhaps would not have been quite so confused or bewildered by what it said. If, if we knew those books better, we'd have so many more aha moments about, ah, he's reimagined that piece of imagery. He's taken that symbol and he's made it mean this. He has been very creative, but he's been able to do that because he knew his scriptures so well. And we know also that he knew his recipients very well and he cared deeply for him. In this part of our looking at Revelation, we're going to concentrate on the first three chapters, perhaps the chapters that we're more familiar with because they're a bit easier to read and a bit more like the rest of the New Testament. But in those letters, which we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, we can see that he loves those people in those churches in Asia, and he wants them to um, hear his message of love, which includes admonishment as well as encouragement. He is a theologian, a pastor, and a poet, and he brings those three aspects of his personality together in this book, which is a mixture of letter, prophecy, and apocalypse. We know who the letter is written to. It's written to the seven churches in Asia. Now, when we say Asia, we, we think more of the Near East, 
and, well, I don't know where it's the Near East. I get confused with the terms, but of India and China and that. But Asia in the New Testament actually means a, what is sometimes called Asia Minor and Northwest Turkey. Those churches are all in Northwest West Turkey. And you can visit some of the uh, sites of those churches. They're still existing there. Smyrna uh, is Izmir, which is a port, still in a thriving port today. You can visit the ruins of ancient Ephesus and sit in the Colosseum amphitheatre where the rioting Ephesians were when Paul upset them so much. You can visit the structures in ancient Pergamon. So the, these were a, a, um, a group of churches on a circular road, and this letter was written to all of them, as well as to all of the church everywhere. Uh, he chose seven churches, perhaps because they were on a circular road. There were more than seven churches in that region. But also seven, a recurring number in, throughout the Bible and also in Revelation, is, is a uh, symbol of completeness. So perhaps seven churches to represent all the church. Now to be a Christian in the time that this letter was written had challenges. The uh, Christians in Asia Minor were part of the Roman Empire, but most of them would not have been Roman citizens. So they didn't have the same recourse to legal standing or help in times of trouble that, for example, Paul had when he could appeal to Caesar when he was jailed, um, because Paul was a Roman citizen. Um, and they believed something quite strange to everybody else around them. They believed in one God. In fact, because they rejected the other gods, they were thought to be atheists. They met in a private home for their times of worship rather than a public temple. They were following a leader who had been executed as a rebel against the state. They had strange beliefs about eating and drinking flesh and blood, about having love feasts together. So it was a challenge to be a, a, a Christian for, this, for a number of reasons. But increasingly one of the challenges was the rise of the emperor cult where the emperor was um, thought to be divine. And there were temples, rich temples built for the emperor. Now, this idea of divinity of, of the king or the ruler was not um, rare in, in eastern lands. You know, pharaohs were regarded as, as divine. Kings of Babylon were divided, regarded as divine. When Alexander the Great went conquering in, in the east, he was regarded as a god. But this idea was flourishing in the time that this letter was written. And it was a real challenge because, of course, the Christians would say that Christ is Lord, not the emperor is Lord. And we know that Christians were persecuted. They were persecuted in Rome in the time of Nero. And Nero is, is probably referred to in, in the book later um, with the numbers 666. So we know that this, this knowledge of persecution of Christians influenced what's in, in the book of Revelation. But there was also um, at least harassment in the time of Domitian. And, and in one of the letters to Pergamon, I think, we see here of Antipas, who's already given his life as a faithful witness. Just going to have a little drink. We know um, from letters that Pliny, who was a Roman official living in Asia, wrote um, a bit later than when the book was written, but still in the same time frame, mm. Uh, about how this persecution might take form. He, he writes of having Christians denounced to him. He didn't go actively looking for them. But if they were denounced to him, he would interview them and he would ask them 
whether they would um, renounce Christ and denounce Christ. And if they wouldn't, and he'd asked them several times, then he'd have them killed. But if they would denounce Christ and then make an offering to the emperor at his temple and even curse Christ, then they, they were able to take, get away with their lives. So we, we know that Christians were harassed, that they were denounced, and that if they were um, harassed in this way, that they might pay the price of faithfulness with their life. So John is writing to these churches where there's an increasing risk of persecution, and he's writing because he sees persecution coming, and he wants to encourage them and strengthen them in the face of that persecution. So as well as being a letter, it's a prophecy. Now, when I was young, and knew a little less than I do today. I always used to think of prophecy as predicting the future, and that's certainly the way the word is used in, in everyday language. It's, we don't talk about prophecy in any other way except thinking about it in terms of the future. But in biblical terms, that's not what prophecy is. Yes, it may have predictive elements, and certainly in Revelation there are predictive elements, but primarily prophecy is the word of God spoken into a particular situation to a particular people. And this is what revelation is. It's a word of God spoken to the church in Asia Minor. It's a word of God about Jesus and to Jesus and from Jesus through an angel to John. John is not speaking out of his own knowledge or understanding, he's speaking directly a word of God into the lives of these Christians. And because we know that all scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired and suitable, this can be a word that's spoken into our lives as well. But in order for us to understand what it means, we have to know what it meant for those Christians in that time. And finally, he identifies this as an apocalypse. Now, Again, that's a word that we're familiar with, meaning cataclysmic and calamitous ends and disasters. But as I've already alluded to, uh, the word actually just means unveiling or revelation, which is why the book's called The Revelation of St. John. Literature of this type flourished uh, between 200 BC and 200 AD, and it came from the, a, a rich stream of... Um, Jewish uh, response to being persecuted um, and being a minority in, in a time of powerful world dominions where the suffering minority might not see any hope in this world. And it was a message to say that regardless of what you see now, God is in control and in the end, justice will be done. In the end, those who are oppressing you will get their just deserves and, and you will be with God. It was a subversive literature because it was writing against the powers of the day. And uh, partly for that reason, it's been written in symbols using numbers and, and imagery so that if it fell into the wrong hands, people wouldn't understand that it was actually about them. It could have circulate amongst the oppressed minority and they would read and understand it, but the rulers would not. And John uses the style of writing, particularly in the chapters 4 to 21, which are not the chapters that we're looking at at this 
part of the series, but next year we will be looking further into them. But John, in contrast to the earlier writers of Apocalypses, writes not from the perspective that eventually victory will come for the people of God. He writes from the perspective of knowing that God's victory over evil and death is already won through the person of Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Revelation is an unfolding of the fulfillment of this to its completion. It's an unfolding of the kingdom of God coming to its completion. It's set in that tension between the victory is already won, the already, but the victory is not yet complete, the not yet. And John, through his series of visions, is showing us what this looks like from different angles and in different ways. We have quite a multiplicity of of visions in the latter part of the book, and there's seven seals, um, not the barking kind, seals on an envelope, seven trumpets, seven plagues, there's the conflict between the church and the powers of evil, there's the fall of Babylon, um, and Babylon would have been known to be Rome in, in terms of the original readers. And so it's a complex series of visions, and there have been a number of different ways that people have read this. There's been the um, chronological one where it's the history through the ages up until now, whenever you're reading it, and people have identified different bits of it according to what they've seen in history, like my friend who insisted that the beast with the ten horns was the European Union. Um, Then there's the futurist readings where people um, focus very much on the end time aspect of it. And for many of those people, everything from chapter four onwards is yet to come. Um, And then there's the the, what's called the idealist version where they're saying, well, actually, none of these are specific events. This is all about timeless um, spiritual truths. Now, whilst there may be elements that make sense to you out of each of those ways of looking at it, as it will be clear to you from what I've said, that's not the the viewpoint that I take and it's not the viewpoint that I think that the rest of the preaching team are going to take. This is a letter of prophecy written to a particular group of people in a particular time and it had to have made sense to them at that time and be a message for them. So rather than seeing all these visions as a sequential, uh, one after the other after the other happening in time, I see these as John showing us through the Spirit, through God speaking to him, at a cosmic level, what is going on in the world today. It's um, looking at the story from different angles, looking at it uh, progressively with different aspects, a fuller experience, an intensification of what we're seeing, the story of salvation and judgment, till we reach the final fulfillment the completion, the restoration, God's justice and kingdom fully arrived when heaven and earth are no longer separate spheres, but they're one. And we don't need a temple anymore to come and worship God because God is in the midst of us and we are dwelling with him together. So as we read the book of Revelation, I think it's important not to get bogged down in trying to work out 
every little detail. In fact, there's some meanings that have been lost to us. We no longer really know what some of the things refer to, or even some, you know, in the letters that we're looking at, we don't really know who the Nicolaitans are that we'll come to, and, and who, who Balaam was, or, or we don't know all the details. And even the reading today, there's question marks on how we understand what the seven spirits um, before the throne actually means. But we know, because it's a Trinitarian formula, that it's talking about the Spirit of God. So it's important to look at the visions as a whole and not, not to get bug, bogged down in the detail. So John tells us it is a revelation, an unveiling from God to Jesus, which by an angel came to him. He tells us what soon must take place. John was anticipating a time of persecution, as I've said, and he saw that that was coming soon. But he was also anticipating the completion of Jesus' victory. And that time, no one knows when that's going to happen. Even Jesus himself did not know when he was going to return. And we are warned against speculation about when that is in the Bible. We are told that nobody knows. Our focus is not to be on, is it happening now, but on how we're living now. And I'm reminded of uh, Aslan, who says, I call all times soon. So, sorry, I can find my place in my notes. So it is happening, it, it's showing us the conflict that is happening now between evil and God, the conflict that is happening now on earth, the reality that we too are living in. And so in one sense, whilst for the people who read the letters, John was talking about tribulation and tro troubles and persecution that was coming to them soon, it is something that is always happening. And that we see that it is ongoing happening and all these times are soon. So for every Christian throughout the ages who has read these scriptures, they could hear rumours of wars and wars and famine and plague. And so, so it continues to be a relevant message to, to the church down through the ages. And it seems particularly relevant for us now in a time of plague to be reading a book, in a time of great uncertainty for many of us financially, for a time of uh, great sorrow in the world, to be hearing again this message of hope and encouragement. This... The central theme, well, one of the central themes of the book is to stay true, to be faithful, to endure. So John addresses initially what he sees as troubles within the churches so that they can repent, turn back to God, be transformed, and therefore able to endure, able to be, pers to be persistent in their faith, able to reach the final victory. In many ways, Revelation doesn't give us any new ideas. We could see from the reading that we had from Ephesians that Paul has also talking about uh, Christ becoming the head of everything, that there's going to be a completion, that we are called by his blood to live that life with him. But it does give us a new perspective. Uh, our senses are not to be dumb in reading Revelation. In, in that hymn we sang earlier today, it, it, 
it wants us to turn off from the world so we can concentrate on, on Jesus. But in Revelation, John calls upon us to, to use all our senses. It is something to be heard. Blessed are those who read this. And that would have meant reading aloud, as our translation today said, reading aloud. In biblical times, when a letter was received, not everybody could read. And so people would gather together in their worship service and they would read. And so when this letter arrived, it would have been read aloud in entirety, which would take maybe, I don't know, 40 minutes, an hour. It's not something that we're used to. I often worry that when I choose passages for readings when I'm preaching that people will think, gosh, that was a long passage. Not quite as long as reading all 21 chapters of Revelation all at once. Um, but people were used to listening to it, and so you, our senses are engaged. We are hearing the story, and as it unfolds, he's asking us to turn and see the voice with him. To, to, so we're hearing, and then we're seeing, and we're smelling the prayers of incest, and we've got tactility and numbers and shapes and forms. And I'm sure there's another sense that I've forgotten. Um, so it really engages our imaginations. It gives us a new perspective. It asks us to think again about what we've committed to. It asks us to reevaluate our convictions, our loyalties, our commitments. I was um, pleased to hear Dave talk about Vietnam. I was talking to Elaine earlier this week, and she's talking about the Vietnamese um, pastors and how they were risking, literally risking their lives and doing the work that they're doing in this time of COVID, and that some of them have died, but they have um, counted that not as a loss because their priority was uh, to serve Jesus. So that wasn't from persecution, but from disease, uh, although there has been times when the church in Vietnam has been persecuted. But here they were, they were enduring, keeping faithful, they were blessed because they had read and they had kept and kept on, kept keeping on, being through and faithful to Jesus. So it's a book about conflict, about the cosmic conflict and where we stand in that conflict and where we've taken a stand and whether we will stay where we've taken that stand. But it is more than that. It is a book about God and a book about Jesus. It is a book about worship. In, even here in our introduction, we see this. It is a book where almost every other page there is a hymn, a passage of worship that the church or the elders or the angels are singing about God and Jesus. And if we hear grace and peace to you from God, grace and peace to you from the seven spirits of the church, grace and peace to you from Jesus, God who is and was and is to come. God is the past, the present, and the future. Our translation this morning said, I am the first and the last, but some of you will be more familiar with, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He was, God is all the letters of the alphabet, both the end and the beginning, but all in between. God is sovereign. He is control of everything that is written. Um, he is sovereign over time and history. He was, he is, 
and is to come, past, present and future. And Jesus, grace and peace to you from Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Jesus, the model for us. Jesus who was the faithful witness, you know, witnessing and being faithful, such repeated time and time again through Revelation. And he is the one who can stand with us and strengthen us when we struggle to be that faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is our hope for the future. And he is the ruler of the kings of earth. He loves us. He has loosed us from our sins. He has freed us from our sins. But I love that image of loosed us from our sins, which is a a more literal translation of the Greek. He's freed us. He has loosed us from them. They no longer bind us. And he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. The intent of revelation is not just to inform us, or not even to inform us about God, but to involve us in God. The intent of revelation is to put us on our knees in worship. It is to challenge us to say, where am I? Who am I? And and what challenges do I face that I need to repent from? What challenges do I face that I can stand and call upon Jesus, the faithful witness, the one who, who loves me? The intent of salvation is to set the salvation, the intent of revelation is to set the salvation-shaping words of God in motion in our lives. It was written to people, I'm going to read a quotation from uh, Eugene Peterson, to people who dare to live by the great invisibles of grace, who accept forgiveness, who believe promises, who pray, People who daily and dangerously decide to live by faith and not by works, in hope and not in despair, by love and not hate. And they are daily tempted to quit. John writes to them to encourage them not to. He writes to us to encourage us whatever challenges we face, whatever we need to repent from, to turn again to Christ, to be transformed to live in this world which we are part of the cosmic struggle between evil and good, to stay true, to stay faithful, and to rejoice always in him. Amen.